From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. In the 1970s, a Woodstock song became the rallying cry for a back-to-the-land movement. In the face of a crashing economy, a small stampede of young people fled to West Virginia to live off their own labor. Yeah, while most of them, I would say, came from the Mid-Atlantic and then um, some of the Rust Belt states, there were people who ended up hearing about it um, from uh, out in California as well. I'm gonna leave the city. In some ways, that back-to-the-land movement never ended, and we're even seeing an uptick as the pandemic has reshaped our society. And, I, you know, honestly, I've been asked this before, and I'm not sure that it's totally ever gone away. <laughs> but first, there's definitely a back-to-the-garden thing happening now. People all over are planting vegetables and building raised beds, mostly for the love of it, but some are also anticipating food shortages. At the height of the pandemic, Lilia Fukin was part of an effort to help people create immunity gardens in their windowsills and backyards. Immunity gardens is a new name for an old thing. We haven't invented anything. It's just a reminder of something that much of our society has lost. We've lost touch with the fact that we can support our immunity through our relationships with plants. And with immunity gardens, we're encouraging people to focus their plant choices on foods and herbs that boost immunity. And this can be interpreted as the immune system of a particular individual or a whole system that boosts the immunity of an entire community. The COVID-19 pandemic is profoundly disrupting the food chain supply on a global scale in a way that we're not sure how that's going to play out, but we already know that there's a shortage on seeds. And then there's the issue of actually getting food out into the market because people are not working in the fields the way they had been. So there are harvests that are rotting in fields. So in the meantime, what people can do is practice gardening in any way that they can, whether it's a whether it's a windowsill garden in their apartment or a backyard or a community garden. Uh, there are so many different ways of approaching it, but learning how to tend the plants and use them, whether they're herbs for medicine or they are vegetables for food, this is the time to start working on developing that muscle memory. Uh, and that will make it much easier to scale up a year from now. Think things are going to be much different and probably very difficult in terms of food and medicine. Now is the time to remember that our first medicine is not what we go to the pharmacy to pick up in a plastic bottle that was shipped from overseas from a manufacturing plant that really the first medicine could potentially be in our backyard or in a community garden 
or on our windowsill. And that is what Immunity Gardens is working to do. Immunity, Immunity Gardens is working to put together sort of a template so that folks have a starting point and they can begin to, um, maybe with just three or four, maybe five herbs, learn how to tend these particular plants with these particular properties that are very easy and safe for them to tend and um, process and use as tea or a salve, ways that they can help tend to themselves and their families. This project was born uh, out of a conversation with a farm in Afton at Farfields Farm, which is a small regenerative agriculture project. And one of the very first questions that popped up at the beginning of this COVID-19 crisis was not only how can um, small farms help support those who are most vulnerable right now, those who are either unhomed or have lost their jobs or, you know, those who are, those who were really facing the most immediate crisis. And we were talking about how to scale up production, but also how to get that out into the community. And this is a challenge, you know, working community engagement during a, a stay-at-home order <laughs> is a real challenge. And um, one of the things that popped up immediately was one very easy thing is we can just encourage people to plant immunity gardens. People are seeing definitely that they need to be planting gardens. And there's been this rush on seeds. So seeds, uh, vegetable seeds are becoming scarce. And there's just like well, there was with toilet paper, there's this sort of hoarding mentality that's happening. So how to prepare for that? Because a year from now, if there aren't seeds available, that's when a, that's when a whole different crisis hits. My dad is gardening a lot, and he sent me a picture of his little tomato plants and these tiny little, they're not tiny actually, they're sort of adolescent, almost adolescent. Um, they're these little, they're these small, tender plants that were beginning to get whipped about in the wind. And so what he did is he went into the yard and found a bunch of broken sticks and created a support system using old spent tree branches. And he sent me this picture and said something to the effect of um, how beautiful it was to see these young plants leaning against these old spent branches. And that is a metaphor. <clears throat> well, I mean, it's just how gardening is, right? A gardener sees a need, finds a solution around them, and then uses the soil as a support system to make that connection between the strength and the weakness. And that is that is what a community is. A community is a tapestry. It's a tapestry. It's a weaving of strengths and weaknesses. And together we lean in and support each other or find support. And the hope is that immunity gardens will take root and they will become a system of reliance, of interdependence that becomes so woven into the fabric of our community that People won't remember 30 years from now. It's going to be hard to remember a time before immunity gardens were a part of their community. Lilia Fukin is the former Food and Community Project Director at Virginia Humanities. Coming up next, back to the land in Appalachia. The 1960s and 70s brought the counterculture and civil rights movements. The period also ushered in a back-to-the-land movement. Fed up with the Vietnam War and the sputtering economy, young Americans flocked to the countryside in the hopes of a simpler life. It was a longing expressed at the time with the song Going Up the Country by Canned Heat, which played at Woodstock in 1969.
Ginny Turman is a history professor at the University of Virginia College at Wise. She says the back to the land movements have cropped up throughout American history, and the pandemic might have sparked another one. Ginny, you've studied the back to the land movement of the 1970s, where young people poured into West Virginia. What was drawing them there back then? Um, they were actually a combination of factors. The earliest people to set up either some kind of commune or um, go and purchase farms were folks who had already been working in West Virginia as part of the uh, war on poverty. And so while we associate the Back to the Land movement with the 1970s, there were a few people who weren't necessarily from the state, but they fell in love with the state while they were there, wanted to continue to um, serve and work alongside poor Appalachian residents, and decided to buy farms. And as it happened, farmland was going for a a very uh, low price (laughs) in West Virginia because basically since the 1940s, the state had been losing population. So they were finding farms for the price of a truck. Are you kidding? The price of a truck? Yeah, yeah. Somebody in Wetzel County I interviewed uh, had, had mentioned that, that they were able to get a piece of land for for a truck, <laughs> basically. I read that there was a little land rush after an article in particular appeared in Mother Earth News. Yeah. So Mother Earth News formed in 1970, and it was one of the probably early signals that this trend to go uh, buy farms and start living uh, self-sufficiently was really picking up steam. Mother Earth News caught wind of this little nucleus of people forming an alternative community in Lincoln County, and they, they picked it up in a story on how to find land and published it in Mother Earth News published it in the School of Living's magazine called The Green Revolution, and then Mother Earth News picked it up for a radio ad. And uh, in the words of uh, another historian who was part of the movement, um, Paul Sahlstrom, it created a small stampede to the county. So they ended up with between three and 400 people moving uh, to Lincoln County after that ad. (laughs) So what was it about Lincoln County that was so attractive in particular in West Virginia? Um, I think part of what was the attraction of Lincoln County was the cheap land. That was part of it. Um, But it also, it wasn't really in the coal mining areas, so it was still fairly clean and untouched by the surface mining that was occurring in some of its neighboring counties. A lot of the the back-to-the-landers would avoid the heaviest coal mining counties, and they would go to the agricultural counties where there were already farmers, you know, still um, farming tobacco and things like that. So still a farming community, largely. And these people came from as far away as California. Yeah, yeah. While while most of them, I would say, came from the mid-Atlantic and then um, some of the Rust Belt states, there were people who ended up hearing about it um, from uh, out in California as well, and the Pacific Northwest. So, Were these so-called hippies or something a little different back in the 70s? Um, they, they received the label hippies from West Virginians who saw the long hair and the granny dresses and the beads and some of the behaviors. I mean, some of them did, you know, smoke pot, started communes, things like that. So there were some who probably would have accepted that label. But there were others who were more politically active, had been affiliated with the New Left or um, anti-poverty, civil rights campaigns. Some of them expressed a little bit of resentment about that label, too, because they felt like what they were doing was a lot more serious than just going and partying and getting high. So were there a lot of conflicts with the native West Virginians? There could be. And initially, there were. And it really depended on where and what the circumstances were in the context. Because in places like Hinton, West Virginia, there were reports between 68, 69, 70 of some communes getting burned out, uh, you know, shot at, um, things like that. There were other conflicts that, that emerged Later on, but it was typically related to um, land use and environmental care, conflicts over surface mining, conflicts over development, things like that, that the media tended to pick up as an outside insider conflict, but it was a lot more complicated than that. Do you think most of those homesteaders who arrived in the 70s stayed? 
Or do you think they moved on? Um, some of them did stay. I wouldn't say, I can't say a majority necessarily. Um, for West Virginia and places like Lincoln County, it didn't really have the infrastructure or the the public funds to be able to provide a good quality of life. I mean, this is something West Virginia is still struggling with. They didn't have um, money for basic roads. So if you wanted to go in the 70s and you were serious about farming, they quickly discovered that getting their produce out to urban markets could be really difficult, especially in the spring when it rains all the time. <laughs> so there was that. And then on uh, after they started having children, they found the public school systems lacking. And of course, this was something that... Um, uh, native Appalachians, native West Virginians had been had been fighting through um, the war on poverty years to try to get their public school systems uh, more adequately funded and you know um, upgraded to just kind of basic modern uh, modern standards. And so a lot of the back to the landers grew frustrated uh, in certain in certain communities, certain counties, and would end up leaving and going to places like Athens, Ohio, where there was a bit more, um, there were more public resources to be able to um, live the kind of lifestyle and make a living from the land like they wanted to do. So part of what was happening in the 70s was an economic downturn. You've written that actually these back-to-the-land movements tend to follow economic downturns. So has it happened since then? Um, I would say yes. And uh, it, it certainly bore out during the Great Depression uh, on a large scale. And then uh, the 1970s with the stagflation and the energy shortages and, and all of that. And then we did see a bit of a back-to-the-land resurgence in the 1990s as well. Um, and, I, you know, honestly, I've been asked this before, and I'm not sure that it's totally ever gone away <laughs> um, because people are finding it so hard to make their dollars stretch that there's always this idea. Um, I've seen 20-somethings now, uh, even even before COVID, um, who were interested in, in, in trying to farm and uh, trying to make a living um, from, uh, you know, um, trying to make a living from the land, basically. So I'm not sure it's totally gone away. And that may say something about our general uh, economic stability in our country among people who, uh, who you know, want to aspire to the middle class and just have difficulty doing it. Do you think in some ways we're seeing the beginning of another one of these back-to-the-land movements now because of coronavirus? I think it's entirely possible, particularly with the uh, current economic situation. It's it's possible that this could be a fleeting thing because a lot of people are just at home feeling a sense of insecurity and boredom, um, and they want to get out. It's spring. Let's try to plant some things. Um, if you tried to order seeds, you'll find out that there are uh, a lot of seed catalogs are currently <laughs> currently out of out of stock. But at the same time, as this downturn, if, if it does tend to kind of sock in and last a while, yes, it's entirely possible that people are going to be relying on, um, on their survival instincts and wanting to produce more of their own food, uh, learn to can, learn to make bread, learn to store food. And, uh, and it could spark a renewed interest in back to the land as a, as a complete lifestyle, not just a temporary fix. You know, that and the return of animals and the clearing of smoggy skies, they have been silver linings in this crazy moment. There have. There have. Um, yeah, learning about the, the sea turtles that have had the chance to, uh, to, to birth their young without, uh, without any human interference has really been a, a striking thing to witness. And perhaps that's one of the things to learn from the back to the landers is that they did develop a lot of strategies and then also learned a lot of strategies from uh, Appalachians who were already still continuing to farm, uh, at least being semi-self-sufficient. And perhaps perhaps they do hold some keys for us going forward, even if you know we do face economic recovery. Is there a way we can do it that, that still makes space for all of these other creatures and greater environmental health? What about where you are in far southwestern Virginia. Are you experiencing a kind of increase in people wanting to move from city to nature? 
Well, I have, we've been witnessing, uh, especially when the shutdown first started, that there were a lot of people out of D.C. and Baltimore who started to flee uh, to Southwest Virginia, and they rented cabins and uh, Airbnbs. And it did raise a little bit of concern, um, particularly if you're talking about far southwest Virginia and parts of East Tennessee, where we have been losing our hospitals and medical care facilities for the last 10, 15 years and have had faced a number of close downs of our uh, of our medical infrastructure. And so when you have people coming from cities into the country, there is more than just going to escape the disease in the city or the pollution of the city. You have to actually think about the the infrastructure and the resources that are available in the place that you're going to. So it created a bit of a, a bit of a concern um, among uh, among people in Southwest Virginia that they were going to be possibly overrun and overwhelmed. And I, I think this also was a concern out in uh, in places like Colorado as well. Rural areas in general have been uh, have been concerned about this. What made you want to look into this? Was there a personal connection for you with the Back to the Land movement? There was, um, and and uh, some there there was always something. I don't know why. And I mean, even as a kid, I was always fascinated with the 1960s. I would sit through my history classes and wait for them to talk about the 1960s, which they never did because it was the 80s and they didn't <laughs> see that as history. But, um, but you know, yeah. as, I, as I got a little bit older and developed taste in music, I you know, gravitated to the Grateful Dead and I loved, you know, counterculture uh, just in general. And as it turns out, my family is from Floyd and Patrick County, Virginia. And I remember going to visit my my grandparents in Floyd, who lived right in downtown Floyd. And I noticed some cultural changes taking place in Floyd by the 1990s. And Floyd in the 1970s and 80s was your typical kind of dying agricultural community. If you looked at the downtown, uh, most of the storefronts were empty. Um, people were leaving. My dad left. Um, my mom left uh, Meadows of Dan. There just weren't many opportunities for people to try to make a living there. And by the 1990s, in part as a result of the back to the land population that had moved there, they started tapping into uh, larger regional economic revitalization initiatives. So they got funds to start craft programs. Um, They were tapping into the tourist market coming through the Blue Ridge Parkway. And so you see from Native groups, the the advent of the Friday Night Jamboree, which is a cultural institution along the Crooked Road now, as well as a number of kind of, oh, I don't know, countercultural stores, tie-dye shops, um, coffee shops. Uh, Odd Fellas Cantina, which is no longer there, but that was a that was an, a, a restaurant started by some in migrants, and then Floyd Fest, which was the big uh, the big venue um, every uh, every July. I think that started back in two thousand one, and so those those changes not only attracted my attention but also the media's and really helped to put Floyd on the map as a new tourist destination, kind of the Asheville of the. You know, a small a small version of Asheville, North Carolina, San Francisco of the South. <laughs> so that's a good thing, right? Everybody wins when outsiders come in, spend money, and build culture. <laughs> I would say it's it it has its benefits, but there have been some um, drawbacks as well. And even even as I ask some back to the landers to reflect on that legacy, some of them have said, "Well, we're we're proud of what we've done, but it feels a bit gentrified as well." And if you talk to people in Asheville, I'm sure they would say the same thing. That what ends up happening is once a town develops a certain cachet. You know, your rents go up, um, the the cost of, uh, you know, your taxes go up. And sometimes it can actually push push people out. Uh, maybe folks who were there to begin with um, can no longer afford to live in the, the houses that they, you know, were, were raised in or something like that. So there is kind of an ambivalent legacy uh, anytime you have that kind of rapid development. And you saw that really with your own grandparents and their ancestors, they actually were natives to that area and did, to some extent, live genuinely off the land, right? 
They did, yes. Um, my my one grandparent's still living. She's ninety seven, um, and she still talks about life before electricity. <laughs> so, <laughs> is she the one who wrote a poem about the chestnut tree? Because she was recalling the times when she and her family would eat or sell chestnuts. Now, this is that was actually my maternal grandmother. So, oh yeah, tell me about her. Um, yeah, uh, Eunice Yates Mac Alexander. Um, she was a, a school teacher in Meadows of Dan, and was quite a quite an artist and a poet. She um, painted lots of uh, beautiful folk style um, portraits of life in uh, in Patrick County baptisms, um, farm life, things like that. And so she was very gifted. Um, with both words and images. She also made a bit of a name for herself as a, uh, as a ballad singer, and she liked to learn ballads from her students, and she also learned a few ballads from her family as well growing up. And so you'll find her on Virginia Traditions, a Smithsonian Folkways recording label, and I have to laugh because you can find her online, and I think my grandmother would not be, <laughs> not be okay with being online. So <laughs> I love that she actually recorded some of these ballads. Let's play one now as we finish the interview. Yeah, let's play uh, Wild Hog in the Woods. There is a wild hog in the woods, diddle-o down, diddle-o day. There is a wild hog in the woods, diddle-o, there is a wild hog in the woods, kills a man and drinks his blood. Come okay, cut him down, kill him if you can. Jenny Terman is a professor of history at the University of Virginia College at Wise. And here's another voice who captured the spirit of the land in that era, John Prine. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason at Virginia Humanities. In Japan, when a long, slender, brightly colored fish resembling a dragon washes up on shore, it causes some alarm. Some people there believe the arrival of this fish foreshadows earthquakes and tsunamis. Jennifer Martin is an oceanographer and professor of biology at Thomas Nelson Community College. She studies this deepwater fish and why it might be showing up on beaches. Jennifer, fears of a natural disaster in Japan were swirling online after some deepwater fish believed to be harbingers of earthquakes and tsunamis washed up on shore. What were those fish? Those fishes were oarfish. They're usually deep-sea fishes. They're not typically found inshore, but they are known to strand, either beach themselves or get caught in coastal nets. What do they look like? Uh, they are extremely large, very slender, ribbon-like fish that are bright silver and have some blue, but they have these amazing crimson fins. And on their dorsal fin, uh, they're extremely long. It's like a, a beautiful red mane. How long can they be? Uh, just just those dorsal fins can be a, a meter or two long, but the fish itself has been documented at 15 meters. Um, most likely, they're about 10 meters or so max. And a stranding typically is dozens? 
Um, not all at once. Uh, within a, a year period, a lot is 15. So, um, you know, before the 2011 earthquake and tsunami, there were about 20 documented uh, strandings throughout Japan. And the 2011 tsunami was the horrible one that killed tens of thousands. Yes, it did. It was uh, it was awful. <laughs> I mean, there's just no other way to say that. But um, yeah, that was a they hadn't had that many oarfish wash up in Japan in quite a long time. So, so, so they pay attention to oarfish stranding. It's not one beach; it's over an entire coastline. But people take note when one washes up. Absolutely. Um, the The Japanese name for the oarfish translates roughly to "messenger from the sea dragon or sea god's palace." So they associate that um, a, a, such a deep water fish coming onto the beach as a sign of the sea dragon, if you will, Japanese folklore, essentially being mad and punishing by having an earthquake or a tsunami come along. Who in Japan has seen this as a harbinger of tsunamis or earthquakes? I was in Japan about six weeks before that tsunami hit, and I was there uh, researching uh, the group of fish, the order of fishes that the oarfish belongs in. And I had been at a museum in Tokyo, and I was getting ready to leave to fly north to another museum in the, the northern island of, of uh, Hokkaido, when a museum curator had called and said, hey, Jennifer just left our museum about a week ago, but unbelievably, we have an oarfish, and it's still alive. So I um, quickly canceled my flight, jumped on a bullet train, and went about four hours south so that I could see this oarfish. And never in my wildest dreams would I ever imagine I'd have the chance to work on a fresh specimen that had not yet been preserved. So whatever I needed to do to get to that fish, I was willing to do. So I got to the museum about an hour after the fish had died. They, they moved it from the port, and it was laying in the basement of the museum. And this one was about eight or nine feet long. So um, kind of a baby, if you will. Um, but uh, I was so excited. So I spent all night long, I had a marathon dissection of this fish. But what was really interesting to me, and this is when I realized, like, for the older generation of Japanese that, that are still really in tune with the folklore, that this was really important to them. Because I had a lot of janitorial staff um, that wouldn't even come anywhere near the basement of the museum because they heard there was an oarfish there. And they did not want to be associated with that bad luck. And then earthquake ideas and tsunami ideas started flying around. So let's say not long after the 20 washed up that year, there was a tremendous earthquake and tsunami. There was. about uh, the, the one that I was dissecting about six weeks later, that one was actually caught in a fisherman's net, but they're in shore, so not in deep water. And that was the last one that I'm aware of that had become stranded in Japan before the tsunami hit. Remind us of that tsunami, what happened and where it struck. So um, most people associate that with hearing about the Fukushima disaster, the natural, uh, the power plant that got hit. But there were, I think, 20,000 people that had lost their lives or are still missing as a result of the, the tsunami that came afterwards. That must have been so especially horrifying to you because you had come to know so many people there and spent so much time in Japan. I had. Um and it being so recent, it felt very personal. I was actually giving a talk about the oarfish at a scientific meeting the morning I found out about that and quickly changed a few slides at the end of my talk. But my first concern was, you know, let me contact the scientist I'd just been working with for two months and make sure everyone was okay. And thankfully, everyone I knew was, but there were a lot of people that were not. And it still felt very personal. Is there any scientific basis, as far as we know, for or fish stranding on beaches being harbingers of tsunamis and earthquakes? Uh, no. Scientifically, we don't have support for that. Um, most theories relate it to climate change. So whether we're having an El Nino or a La Nina year and there's temperature changes so that maybe they move inshore a little bit more. Some other ideas is that they're coming towards the surface to reproduce and they get caught in a current. And because they're so long, they're very long, and some people refer to them as snake-like, but they don't swim like snakes or eels at all. They actually orient in the water column with their head up and their tail down. They undulate their dorsal fin, this bright red crimson fin, in a wave-like motion, mainly to move up and down. 
And how deep do they customarily stay in the ocean? We think between about 200 to 1,000 meters, but but I think that's a gross overestimate, I would guess. Um, what do you mean? Well, we just, we assume because of their coloration and their very large eyes, and we don't see many of them, they're rare, that they're deep water fishes. But there have been, uh, you know, with technology now, we have, you know, ROVs and there's cameras on oil platforms deep underwater and on buoy lines. And we actually see them in 80 feet of water, alive and healthy and, and moving. So not sick or stranded or in any way. So, you know, technology is really giving us much more insight on their natural history and their behavior and distribution. I read another possible scientific explanation, and it was more like a theory, that maybe there are subtle changes in the Earth's crust at the bottom of the sea ahead of an actual earthquake, and that might cause the current to stir and then push the oarfish at the bottom up to the surface. What do you think of that? Um, that's certainly possible. Uh, the oarfish are deep water fish, but not bottom-dwelling fish. So they're up in the water column versus being on the bottom of the of the ocean. So it it could very easily move them. If they get trapped in a current that's pretty strong, they're they're at the will of the current. They're not great swimmers. Why do we especially associate them with Japan? Uh, that seems to be where the overwhelming majority of them show up. Uh, on both sides of the island in the Pacific Ocean and the the, the Japan Sea, there's a a lot there, more so than most other places in the world. You know, it's interesting, you know, we had a few oarfish strand off the coast of Southern California a few years ago, and we didn't have an earthquake there. Um, in 2017, there was an earthquake that hit the Philippines. And uh, within 30 days of that earthquake, I think five specimens had washed up in Southern Mindanao. Um, you know, there's statistically, we cannot say they're directly predicting earthquakes. But the truth is, we, we don't know. It's It's certainly an interesting idea that with more data we could explore. I've read the oarfish is considered beautiful in some of these legends. Absolutely beautiful. Like I said, it's uh, bright silver, has got crimson red fins. I mean, just the most beautiful, vibrant red you could imagine when these things are alive. Um, and the the idea about the oarfish and the sea dragon uh, came from an old Japanese folklore called Urashima Taro. It's about a fisherman who finds a uh, a turtle that's being tortured by some young boys, and he wants to save the turtle. And the turtle rewards him by taking him to the sea dragon's palace, which is at the bottom of the ocean. Um, you know, it's folklore, so there's lots of regional variations. And uh, the gist of the story is that um, the sea dragon has a daughter, the princess, who falls in love with the fisherman. And she takes the form of this oarfish, this beautiful fish, and travels to land, travels to, to Japan in that form so that she could be with the fisherman. Um, some variations have the princess as the oarfish, and some it's just the oarfish is a messenger from the sea dragon that's at the bottom of the ocean. Are there children's books about this? There are. There have been a few that have been translated to English as well. Um, but it is a is a fairy tale that I tell as a bedtime story to my own children sometimes. Um, <laughs> Do they love so it? My son does. My daughter's a little too young, but but my son asks lots of amazing questions about, well, how did that happen? And how can that turn into an oarfish? And um, Salvador Dali actually painted a... Uh, uh, he did a series on Japanese folk fairy tales, and one he titled um, Urashima Taro. And it, I believe it's his depiction of the princess almost as an oarfish because she has this beautiful red hair that's very much like the dorsal fin of these oarfishes. We also believe that those fish are sort of the source of what we uh, think were sea serpent sightings by early sailors. Really? Yeah. Um, if you look at some of the old maps in which they draw these um, amazing sea creatures on them. Many of them are bright red, and they're very similar to what adult oarfish look like. Uh, and when they have that fiery rain, red mane at the surface, and it comes up out out above the surface of the water, six feet or so, that's that that's really impressive. Well, Jennifer Martin, this is wonderful. Thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Thank you so much. Jennifer Martin teaches biology at Thomas Nelson Community College. 
She was named an outstanding professor by the State Council of Higher Education for Virginia. Coming up next, Itsy Bitsy Spider Silk. The soft, colorful silk many of us wear is made from silk-producing worms. But what if we could make a similar fabric from spider silk? Hanish Neep is a professor of applied science at William & Mary. He studies poisonous brown recluse spiders to learn how their incredibly strong silk is made and how humans might try to replicate it. Hannes, what is it like working with spiders every day, poisonous brown recluse spiders? Yeah, for me, it's just exciting to work on this project and to have spiders in my lab and feed them. That's that's just a lot of fun. How do you feed them? We give them crickets. Larger ones get crickets. When they're smaller, we just give them fruit flies. And where do you get the brown recluse spiders? Do you go into the field and pick them up one by one? Well, they're not native to Virginia. Uh, so we get them from a gentleman in, in California who first actually sent them to us by mail. But then we figured out that a lot of them actually didn't make make it through the mail. So he actually ended up coming to a conference. He just brought a few of these little critters in his carry-on luggage. No, he did not. He did. <laughs> so it was almost like in a in a spy movie. We had a little um, exchange at the at the airport, and I went on to the lab with the spiders, and then uh, a lot of exciting research started. Now, do you create your own? Yes, so we now sustain probably what is one of the few colonies of recluse spiders in the world in our lab. So I would say we have right now 50 to 70 animals. How strong is spider silk? And is the brown recluse spider silk stronger than the others? Um, So by weight, spider silk is about five times as strong as steel. Um, and uh, the brown recluse spider is not the strongest of all silks that we know, but it's it's right up there. So it's it's has very typical numbers for any really good spider silk. Someone has made a dress out of spider silk. Yes, that's quite fascinating. People had to collect the silk from about 5 million spiders just to make one dress that a person could wear. And did somebody actually wear that spider dress? Well, a model uh, wore it, and they they took a lot of uh, beautiful pictures, but it's now shown in a museum. Yeah. (laughs) Have you ever thought about making something fun out of some of the spiderweb material you get in the lab? Sure. I mean, because we we play around with spider silk every day, we try to build some some little things. But the thing is always that spiders only make tiny amounts of silk, so what we have are only tiny things. You actually harvest the silk from the spiders. You somehow, without getting bitten, turn the little spiders over on their backs. That's correct. So we we keep them in little plastic vials, and then we just let them out. Then we expose them to carbon dioxide, which just makes them numb for a few seconds. So they, they fall asleep for about half a minute. So then we flip them on their back and just carefully hold them down uh, on some styrofoam. And once they're uh, fixed there, then we can start pulling the silk and milking them for a while. And then we can reel that that silk and collect as much as we need to do our our experiments. How did you discover that the brown recluse has a different spider silk than other spiders? Yeah, I got this hint from a, a collaborator of mine, Fritz Walrath, who is a professor at the University of Oxford in the Department of Zoology. And he has worked with spiders for decades. He is pretty much the guy when it comes to spider silk. And what is different about the brown recluse silk from other spiders? Silks from other spiders, in most cases, they're they're round, like a, a cable or like a, like a hair. And the brown recluse spider, as far as we know from... Over 45,000 known spider species, it's the only one uh, that makes a silk that's not round, but it's a flat tape. Uh, It really makes it unique. For instance, it's very sticky because it's so flat. So all matter is actually sticky if you come close enough to it. If you have something rough and and stick it to a wall, it it would just fall down. But if you make it in a way that it can conform to the wall and actually make many contact points, it'll be sticky. I mean, another way to make something sticky is just to make it soft, right? So if you take a piece of uh, Play-Doh, you can stick it to the wall and it just sticks there because of that. But the trick is to, to get something that's hard and really stiff and still make it sticky. And the way that the recluse spider solved this problem is just by making it very thin. Huh. 
What sort of web does the recluse spider spin? It makes a web that looks pretty messy from far away. It just walks over the ground and it it puts out all the silk all over the place. But we looked closely at that silk, first with a magnifying glass and then with microscope, and we found actually that it's not a random mess, but it's carefully made small loops that the silk produces while it walks around and lays out its web on the ground. And what we found out is that the spider has a little spinneret that's almost like a little sewing machine that's at the end of the abdomen of the spider where the silk comes out into these carefully uh, made loops that are almost perfectly the same size. The spider has to make these very fast, so it makes about 15 of these loops per second. And then just as it walks around, it lays all these looped silk. It's almost like barbed wire so that that it, it lays it out so that other animals can get stuck so that the spider can eat them. You made two discoveries. One with a magnifying glass, that there are these phenomenal loops that are made by this one spider. And the other thing was using a much more powerful microscope. You discovered that it was flat, like tape or fettuccine. Yes. When we looked very closely with an atomic force microscope, we saw that there is this nanostructure in the spider silk that was very exciting. So it almost looked like a piece of textile that had all these fibers that are running parallel to make this uh, ribbon. About how many fibers for the one ribbon? It's about 2,500. Where did you publish your information? Well, this uh, article came out about three months ago in a journal that's called ACS Macro Letters. It's the world's most highly respected polymer journal where people publish things about plastics and spider silk is an, is an example essentially of a biological or a natural polymer, a natural plastic. So what are you thinking the applications could be? What does this suggest to you in terms of discovering a new material? I think this will really help us a lot to understand better why spider silk has these amazing properties. And once we figure that out, then we really can think about the next step, how to synthetically make materials that have similarly exciting properties. Do we already anywhere make synthetic spider silk? This is actually starting right now. There are a few um, startup companies that are trying to do this at a, at a larger scale. The interesting thing about spider silk, it's really 100% protein. So all these uh, exciting properties that spider silk has, they, they come from a, a material that you can essentially eat. And the trick is now how to mass produce this protein. And right now, the most promising approach is to use genetically altered bacteria that have a piece of the DNA that looks like the DNA from the spider in their DNA so that they can actually make the protein that looks like the silk protein. And then you can mass produce it, uh, collect it, and then you can uh, start thinking about making materials out of it. So there's this uh, startup company. They have now uh, made synthetic fibers, and they actually made ties out of uh, synthetically made spider silk. (laughs) Have you seen one? I have not seen one. So they only sold a small number of them. Uh, One of my students uh, applied for the lottery to get one, but we did not end up getting one. But there's a difference between making the protein that spiders use for their webs and making something synthetically that mimics what the brown recluse does, which is it emits this flat tape-like web, which is very unique and could have special properties. Yes. So what we are excited about in this tape is that it is so sticky. So we're thinking uh, about making maybe a new generation of adhesive materials. One way that I look at this is that if we can really mass produce a material like spider silk, there are great opportunities. Uh, It is a material that has better properties than, than pretty much every plastic that we can make synthetically. At the same time, it's really a material that's made by spiders in a totally sustainable and benign way. So if you think about all the plastic that's now drifting around in the ocean and that will still stick there for a very long time and create all kinds of problems, if we can make our plastics out of uh, biological matter or maybe even produce it using organisms, it will be a much more uh, sustainable way to actually use materials. And once you have that protein, you can make all kinds of things uh, out of it, right? So you can you can make a fiber that would maybe replace Kevlar, which is the material that we're currently using in, in bulletproof vests or helmets or in your car tires. But then we can also think about other application, for instance, in biomedicine, right? Because if it's a biological, biogenic material, we can actually put it in an organism without uh, having to expect a lot of adverse effects. Why do you think that you and your graduate student were the first to notice the loops in the brown recluse spider web and to see that the 
tape that is emitted from the spider is actually made of these thousands of other fibrils? I think the loops we only discovered because we were the first to look. And this actually would have been very simple to find out. So all it would have taken is getting a $5 magnifying glass. You could have spotted these loops. But nobody really bothered to look for it. For the other uh, discovery, these nanofibrils in the ribbon, we needed a very expensive atomic force microscope that cost several hundred thousand dollars. And there are not a lot of these around and not a lot of people who really know how to get the best images out of them. And using this kind of uh, hardware, we were then able to, to reveal this, this beautiful nanostructure in the ribbon. It's so, it's so interesting. I feel like we're at an inflection point when it comes to plastics in the environment. And I love hearing you say that you and others are really looking for ways we can use other materials. Yes. So the, the idea that it's uh, naturally produced without consuming petroleum, without using any you know toxic chemical plants, without producing toxic waste, to me, that's totally fascinating, right? So these, these little spiders that we have in our lab, we feed them a cricket once a week, and that's actually more than they, than they need to eat. And just from this one cricket, they produce all this wonder material, which is in many respects better than anything that we can make synthetic. So I think there's a lot for us to learn from nature to come up with uh, much better and more sophisticated materials for the future. Hannes Schneep is a professor of applied science at William & Mary. Support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients, uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monacan Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Cassandra Deering and Aviva Casto are our interns. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.